You're listening to The Noise Canceling Pod, the podcast about streamlining life, encouraging discourse, and maximizing your mind. Hosted by Frank Boyce and Axel Clark. This unpaid fictional ad is brought to you by The Monarchs of Liechtenstein, now streaming on Liechtenstein Mobile Express. This 34 part series saunters through the lives of Carl I, Josef Wenzel I, King Alfred, and Franz Josef II. That's just to name a few. The vast tapestry of the tiny empire has never been this visceral, fierce, and full of drama. Whether it's breathtaking aerial footage from Vadu's castle or historical reenactments from the award-winning cast, the Monarchs of Liechtenstein will keep your pulse racing through all 34 hours of Season 1. Tweet the hashtag, size doesn't matter, and you'll receive the first two episodes for free. Remember, that's Monarchs of Liechtenstein, now on Liechtenstein Mobile Express. Alright, welcome to... Noise Cancelling Pod. I'm Frank Boyce. And this is Axel Clark. We're glad that you're here. Um, we've gotten zero comments so far, so uh, if you guys want to get on that and give us some actual feedback, that would be that'd be awesome. But we really do appreciate people who are subscribing and listening. It's been it's been fun so far. It's definitely been a learning experience. One one note for uh, for a future show, we're gonna do a book club. Uh, maybe every quarter, maybe once. Uh, and, and the book that we're choosing right now is called The Triumphs of, of Experience. And it's by, by George E. Valiant. And that's uh, V-A-I-L-A-N-T. And it's a really cool book. It's about a Harvard longitudinal study that started back in the 30s and, and continued all the way through the lives of all their subjects. So it's, it's really interesting to see the different pivot points of life and see how, you know, some people take 180 one way, some people take 180 the other way. And we were talking before the show that some people just have generally poor lives. So not that I'm laughing at their poor lives, but I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, the book takes a really honest look at, at the lives of, of everyone from those classes. And it's, it's really, really interesting to see the, the difference in uh, how people change and continue to improve or, or not improve throughout their lives. Uh, this episode we're talking about, uh, knowledge acquisition we're talking about learning new skills and and how to master things quickly and then we're also talking about after you've decided to learn a new skill how do we be accountable to those goals and and how are what can we utilize to to drive us towards those goals and drive us towards more improvement so axel is actually going to kick us off talking about uh improvement and and learning things fast because that's that's definitely one of his passions yeah so this is this is a topic i'm excited to talk about it's something i'm always trying to find something new to learn or trying to um, ask people questions. And uh, and there's actually a couple, well, three books that I've read over the past few years that have really set up some great frame, frameworks for learning. And so the first one is The First 20 Hours, How to Learn Anything Fast. And so that's just what it says. He starts off uh, talking about, he get, provides a checklist for rapid skill acquisition and uh, and then he goes through and explains. And so he gives you a checklist for a rapid skill acquisition. And then he goes through and he actually learns four or five new things that he's never tried before and kind of documents it as he goes along. So it's a pretty cool book. Uh, the next book that I'll talk about is uh, The 4-Hour Chef. So some of you may have heard of Tim Ferriss. And he has a 4-Hour Body, the 4-Hour Workweek. Uh, he also did The 4-Hour Chef. So uh, here he gives you, the, there's, it's a very thick book talking he explains that he wants to teach people how to learn, but he's going to use it in the form. He's going to use a cookbook to do that, and so he explains how uh, how he learned how to cook, starting from basically scratch, not knowing how to cook hardly anything, 
and how he ultimately ends up spending like a whole weekend cooking this master meal. And uh, then he ends up, he provides you that 15 recipes that are in a certain order that kind of teach you all the element, basic elements of different types of cooking. And, uh, and so I'll talk about that. And the last thing that we may touch on is th- this book called Mastery. Uh, and that's by Robert Greene. So he taught, he kind of t- takes it to the next level of, okay, how do you become excellent at one certain thing over your lifetime? And so that's a, a another interesting book. But uh, going back to the first 20 hours, so the very first item on the checklist is choose a lovable project. And so I think that's extremely important. So you know how uh, there's a lot of apps out there for learning new languages and someone will pick it up and like, hey, I want to learn such and such language. But if you're not going there or if you're if there's not any reason for you to learn it, it's significantly harder. But if you like have a trip coming up or if there's some sort of project that it's that you can associate this learning with, I think that makes it a lot easier. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I was I mentioned it in podcast zero, I believe, that I, I tried to learn German in the past couple months and I I found it really hard to keep myself motivated when, like you said, there wasn't wasn't anything uh, pushing me towards that or, or no real end goal in sight that I was just going to learn German. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so a funny story. So my, or an interesting story. So my buddy Ken, he got selected for this program where he's in the Air Force. He's going to go down to Columbia and do a year of leadership school with the Colombian Air Force. And they, I think he took a couple years of Spanish in high school, but he does he didn't know any Spanish. And so he's at this language school for, I think, nine months. And so I was asking him, I'm like, man, do you think that's helping you out that, you know, you have nine months to learn this language. And if you don't learn it, like they're sending you to the school and they don't speak, they're not going to speak English to you. Like, do you think that's helping you or hurting you? He told me, he said, man, I try not to think about it. I'm just trying to study along and trust, trust the system and trust my professors. But man, I'm trying not to think about that because that's a lot of pressure. So that was almost like too much stress put on him in that regard. Right, right. Because interesting. Because he's like he's going to go to. I mean, it's going to be a. They're not going to. It's not a high level class, but I mean, he's going to be going to like a college class after only learning the language for nine months. So he was explaining to me that his goal is to just be competent enough that they don't think he's an imbecile, and then he <laughs> knows that he'll pick it up once he got kind of gets um once he gets there and he's around all the time. That's interesting. Uh, I think we should do a podcast just on stress because that's such a fascinating topic and it's so unique to each person for how they how they uh, either like stress or hate stress or need some a little bit of stress but not too much to actually function well. Right. So another thing I'd choose a lovable project, this one I think is really interesting. So I was talking to my girlfriend and I was explaining like how when I get old, how do I make it so I still want to learn all these new technologies? And I was explaining Snapchat and the problem. So all the kids are using Snapchat and I don't want to be the person that's 50 and I'm all these things have passed me by and I, Hey, I don't know how to use this. I refuse to use this. Just teach me how to type emails. I don't want to do any other programs. But the problem is if like, for example, with Snapchat, if none of your peers or none of your friends are using Snapchat, it's a social network. So you can't really just play Snapchat by yourself. So, well, you could, but you'd need two different phone numbers. And right. that, would be, <laughs> that would make people think that you were out of your mind. But so, I can't recommend that. So she was telling me that her friend 
started Snapchatting pictures of her new baby son. And so she's like, hey, parents, if you guys want pictures of, of your new uh, grandson, you got to get on Snapchat. So <laughs> they bought iPhones and now they're on Snapchat. And she said the like the, the mom knows more about Snapchat. She's doing all these videos and all these things. So that's just a, a interesting element of motivation or picking something that kind of motivates you to learn how to learn something new. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> And what's the title of that again? It, it's the first 20 hours, how to learn anything fast. What's okay. And uh, so a couple other things. He talks about focusing your energy on one skill at a time, uh, define a target performance level, deconstruct into sub-skills. And I think that's important. Just trying to keep things simple. So I'm reading this different, another book called The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. And the, mm-hmm. the first thing, or the first chapter is understand simple things deeply. And <clears throat> I think that's important for, this is talking about thinking, but I think it's also important for learning. So he uses, they use an example of, so there's this trumpet master. And he's, so he's got these expert trumpet players in front of him. And they're trying to learn this pretty um, challenging song. So he goes, each one, he says, okay, play the song. The guy plays it and the guy's pretty good. So he's like, great. So he goes through them all and kind of gives them some feedback. And then he said, okay, play this very simple warm-up song. And so everyone's like, okay. So they like just kind of go through the motions and play it. And then they said he played it and it was like this very simple song, but he knew how to just make every note sound beautiful. And so he's like, hey, you guys need to go back to the basics and just focus on every like the simple things, making every note sound beautiful. And that's really like the true essence of being a master. Hmm. So that's in the book, and I was thinking about it. And <clears throat> so, during one summer or during one winter, I was a ski instructor up at Mount Hood Meadows. And so, after so after you tie all the kids, they would do these clinics with all the instructors. And so, the really good ski instructors uh, would teach the would teach the instructors. And I was always like, "Hey, we need to go out onto the black diamonds. We need to go all these hard hills." But we would always we would stick to the blues. And we would be focusing on this very simple skill, but being absolutely proficient at this very simple skill, because that skill is going to carry over when you're out on the black diamond. So I think I thought that was an interesting uh, way of looking at it. And even so then today, so I do contracting for the Air Force and I was thinking, you know what? I don't even, I can't even recall what the elements are of a contract. And so I had to look that up and I was like, man, I need to, I do need to focus on the basics, but I think it's an interesting kind of thought experiment or whatever to go back and say, okay, what am I working on and do, do I have the basics and how well am I doing the basics? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge point. Um, I think learning any skill you need, you need to, especially when you're looking at things like cooking or learning languages, like you need, you need to know those, those root things so well, not only because it's going to help you learn things faster, but when you actually get to some level of mastery, then you can keep pushing that further as opposed to, you know, having to keep going back and relearning skills over and over and over again. And then, uh, I would say like for my, my German, you know, like I would get to a level of proficiency and then drop it for a couple of days. And because I had never actually imprinted that as a habit or a long-term memory, it would just drop out of my mind and it would be really hard to pick back up where I was. Yeah. <clears throat> I like how my example is learning German and yours is being a ski instructor in California. That's a, that's a tough one for me to swallow. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, okay. All right. So let me think. What else do I have? All right. So the next thing that uh, that he talked about, they talked about are eliminate barriers to practice and obtain the critical tools. So this is one thing where let me think about the example I was thinking about was uh, okay. So we talked about how I learned how to DJ and. I, I know my girlfriend at the time did not like this, but I kept my D- DJ mixer out on the coffee table because if I had put that thing away, I would have forgot about it and I never would have practiced. But when it was at the coffee table, I'd sit down I'm like, oh, well, here it is. Like I, I might as well start practicing. So I think it's like kind of like with a guitar, if your guitar is in the closet, you're not going to practice. But if it's sitting out in the living room, then maybe you're going to pick that up instead of flipping on the TV. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping things accessible for sure. Like little tricks to keep your mind engaged and and remembering because there's so many distractions i mean kind of back to the the overall theme of this podcast there's so many distractions and so many things where you're like oh i'll play guitar and you're like oh someone like not for me or you but some a younger person might get this get a snapchat and get get distracted or you know so you see something pop up on twitter you get distracted by that so easily um, <laughs> hey i can't wait to talk about twitter because a little later because i tried this test of taking notes as I read oh, through yeah. Twitter, complete failure. I'm, I'm excited. There probably wasn't a lot to take notes on. It's, a, compl- have it's a complete 140 failure. 140 <laughs> characters is extremely limiting. Yeah. All right. So the last thing on this that I thought was interesting was uh, have fast feedback loops and then emphasize quantity and speed over quality. So he's telling a story about this pottery class where this teacher took two, to divide the students into two groups. And the teacher said, okay, for this group, your grade's going to depend on how many pieces of pottery you can turn out. So it doesn't matter how good they are. I just like the more pottery you can turn out, the better grade you're going to get. And then the second set of students, the teacher said, hey, I'm going to grade you on one piece of pottery. So whatever this, you need to just make one piece that's exceptional. And at the end of the class, the students that had just been turning out all like as many pieces as they could, their pottery was better than the people that had been focusing on quality because they just sat there and like tried to manipulate this one piece of pottery to something excellent, whereas other people were just turning it over and they were able to they had, their pottery was significantly better than the students that were judged only on quality. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I definitely want to touch more. I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but I think that's a good segue you know, when you're taking on a new skill, I think there's kind of this paradox of you want to take yourself as seriously as possible, but you still want to allow for those failures. Um, and I said to a degree of levity, um, if it's outside of what your profession is, you know, I, I think if it's in your profession and you fail, you need to take it really seriously and, uh, figure out what happened. But I think, you know, for things like DJing, like if you, if you make a a drop, that's not very good or, your, your mix is a little off key. Like you can get down on yourself or you can just laugh it off and be like, okay, I just need to keep practicing. Like you said. Um, but I, I do think there is an element of, um, taking yourself very seriously, not, not to the degree where you're pretentious, but where if you're really going to get good at something, you need to say, I'm trying to do this, not just for fun, but because I want to get good at it. Uh, And I think that's an important distinction if you really want to learn things quickly. One thing I wanted to talk about uh, learning skills, and this is more personal antidote. um, When you got to Turkey, uh, how did you learn? 
how did you learn how to do contract in there? Uh, I know it's really specific. Um, and you actually taught me most of the things that I learned after I got there and through some of the contract ridiculous contracts that we were doing. But so you had more of a baseline when you got there in terms of how, how to write a contract in the States. And for people who don't know, writing contracts overseas is light years different than, <laughs> than state said. So it's really based on where you're at and, and there's a lot of local rules to learn. So Talk me through a little bit as a young officer, you know, how you learned those skills quickly and, and excelled. So I think, I actually think the contracting piece, and this is true, not just, so I was in Turkey and I've also been in Qatar. The contracting piece may even be simpler uh, overseas compared to stateside because stateside you have small business and you actually have more regulations that you have to follow. Overseas you have higher thresholds for certain things. And so it's actually easier to do the contracting, but the problem is, particularly in Turkey and in Qatar, the both the Turks and the Qatar Qataris controlled the gate. And so base access and all these local issues of trying to work with the local contractors where their customs are not the same as ours in terms of timeliness and communication, those things were the biggest challenge. <clears throat> and for that, I think it so that really there's I guess you could maybe leave a continuity book that says, hey, look out for this, look out for that. And you could try to do that. But sometimes it's so crazy that you won't believe it until you experience it. And so really for those types of things, I think if you can. So we had people that had been there before and we, um, we had Maten, who was a Turkish national who had been there for years. And I think just talking with him and just hearing his stories and just kind of like, talking to him as much as possible and just getting experience through the discussions with him. I think that's how I learned the, the most because for sure the specific, the contracting piece was simpler, but the overall, it was overall more challenging because of all the local things that you had to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I think mentorship would, is really sweet. I mean, I think there's, there's so many jobs that used to be predicated on, you know, learning a trade from someone who knows that trade well. And now, you know, you come to a job and you may get turnover, you may not, you may just get handed a task and say, all right, go figure it out. So I think that's, that's really cool. And I, I definitely had a very similar experience from you and from the other people in our office that were very, very happy and glad to, to spend time actually talking about situations and, and learning about how strange and different it is. To, to do contracts overseas yeah but yeah i think from a from a macro level you're right it is it is more of a relational learning uh, apprenticeship i guess is what you'd call it right what so one thing looking at this from the mentor perspective mentoring someone else i think the one challenge when you're helping someone to learn you have to you if you just do the work for them and you just like kind of hold their hand through the whole process, they're never going to learn or they're certainly not going to learn as quickly, but you also don't want to, them to fail catastrophically. So it's to me, it's always a challenge when you're trying to get someone to learn and get them up to speed as quickly as possible, turning over to them enough responsibility where it feel, like they feel the responsibility and they're, they're actually doing it themselves, but then keeping a watchful eye and making sure that they're not going to just completely crash and burn. <clears throat> yeah that is i think that's the toughest balance for a manager for sure right and the other the other challenging piece is like you may have someone who's excellent at uh 
at this certain task and now you, you rely on them completely, you never check up on them, and then you give them a slightly different task where they're not as experienced and you just, oh, well, I just give them these tasks and they just handle business. Well, then on this one, they didn't exactly know what they're doing and you just turned them loose. Well, then you, you end up failing catastrophically potentially. So that's always a challenge is kind of assessing where they are at on each project that you give them. One thing I wanted to <clears throat> dig in a little bit deeper is the difference between learning a skill as a child or a student and learning it as an adult. Because I think, I think there's a lot of um, negative feelings and connotations around learning because especially in college, uh, I know for me, like thinking back on the amount of time that I spent studying things that I hated, just like classes that I despised with an absolute passion, like that, that scarred me. Um, I wouldn't say for a, a lengthy period of time, but I think there's still things when I'm thinking about learning where <laughs> I react to them and I'm, I'm just not in, I'm, I can't expend extra energy because it, it reminds me of that time period. And I think, I think shifting out of the mindset and kind of freeing yourself of those preconceived <clears throat> ideas of what learning looks like, like as an adult, I feel like it's so freeing to just be able to read whatever you want in as much time as possible. Yeah. So <clears throat> my story on that, the, I think the point where I realized I'm free to learn whatever I want. And we've talked about this before, but so I was in my master's class at the time and I read this book called Emergency and uh, it's by Neil Strauss and he talks about going to this urban scout training where they taught him how to pick locks, uh, pick handcuffs, uh, leave caches around the city, use disguises, uh, what else is in there, um, bust out of car trunks, all these different things and I think so. I found that there's a class in Philadelphia and <clears throat> I signed up for it and it was $700. And at the time when I signed up for it, I was thinking, man, that's a lot of money. I, uh, I mean, that's a lot of money just for this little class. It's just kind of for fun. But at the same time, I was paying like $2,000 for each of these master's classes. I couldn't even name them right now. What I, I couldn't, I probably couldn't name half my classes even to remember what they were. And I'm spending it three times as much money and I've never talked about those classes again. And that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, okay, once you're out of your master's, you can learn whatever you want. And you've already spent 2000 on these master's classes. So sometimes paying maybe 700 bucks for this urban scout train that you talk about, like I talk about this all the time. Just after, after that, me and my roommate would sit in our house picking handcuffs, Picking locks. locks. Yeah. yeah. We would do it over our lunch break. You'd come, <laughs> oh you'd come over to my cube and we'd be like busting out of zip ties in the, oh, in the hallway between cubicles. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. So the other funny story on that. So first of all, me and my roommate, <clears throat> we were, so we would go to Ace Hardware and we'd just buy locks. And so then we'd just practice picking them. And we were also practice, we'd practice picking these handcuffs. And so one time my butt, the roommate was, uh, picking the handcuffs and I left to go to the store or something and I came back and he was like red face and sweaty and just like whoa uh, p picking them behind your back's a little harder than in the front isn't it how long have you been gone probably like 30 minutes 
Oh my gosh. And then, so and, and then the other funny thing is, so we're picking these locks, we're figuring out which ones are easier. And man, this one lock was almost easier with a pick than it was with a key. And so we're like, hey, we should, then like a few minutes later, we're just like, hey, we should check out what our locks are at our house. Of course, that exact <laughs> lock. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. That's great. That's hey, great. So yeah, I, that class, that class gave us, innumerable discussions yeah. and, and physical challenges <laughs> yeah that, that class was great hey I've, i have a question for you i think i mentioned it my mentioned it last week but in high school or college what i'm interested to know what you think your most useful class was or what you think your best class was i think you you asked it and i i forgot to answer it so i i apologize it was ap psychology 100 percent I had a really great instructor. I didn't like him personally, and he hated me because <laughs> I was kind of a what's a good what's a good word? I was kind of a douchebag in high school, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> which I'm I'm hopeful that I'm not anymore. But <laughs> anyway, a lot of teachers didn't like me in in high school. Uh, but he was really really good. Expected a great deal out of his students, and and forced you to learn because his tests were impossible. Like his his tests were twice as hard as the AP exam. So it was something like 89% of his class all got fours or fives on the AP exams for credit. But I just, I, I couldn't believe even if I didn't enjoy him, his class was so good about teaching about the mind um, and just digging into psychology because as, as an 18 year old, like that stuff, you know, blows your mind, literally pun yeah. intended. Um, just to learn more about the structures that are that are in your mind and how they they handle different stimuli directly. Nice, that's cool. So I don't know if this was my favorite class, and I think everyone probably thought it was their worst class. But in high school, I think typing may have been the class that I use the most here. On, like from now on, I I can't imagine being a picker picking single keys at a time trying to type. Yeah, I took that. I think I took typing in eighth grade like our our junior high was way ahead of the curve for technology and actually i took a class in eighth grade for uh writing in html if you can believe that in eighth grade <laughs> yeah wow yeah. It was, it's kind of amazing looking back i'm like i still can't do that and <laughs> luckily i don't really need to anymore but yeah so we were like writing hand coding websites uh, in eighth grade i hope they still have that class it was really good hey so one uh one thing we talked about last week, I, I'm, I went home and uh, went back to Oregon. And what one of the coolest stories I heard, so my brother's, um, his wife's mother and father, they, uh, they're lifelong learners. So I was talking with them. So they've retired now. And, and so I was talking to them, hey, what are, you guys, what are you guys doing? And so the first thing they looked at is, hey, we want, we want to start a, a brewery. And so they got into it. They bought all the equipment. They went to a master brewer course. They got all this stuff. And then they started looking at the market and they realized that maybe that that, that kind of wave had passed them by. Everyone was already out there. So then they then they looked into doing distilling. And so they look at, they went to a distilling class. They got a still. They started figuring that out. And uh, and then they've also she, like she's talking to me about how her friend went to this thousand dollar French cooking class in France. And, uh, like I was just really cool talking to them, just hearing their different stories about the different little projects they're working on. So are they retired? Yeah, they're retired. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Do you have their contact info? I, yeah. I want to hit them up on the distillery topics. I need a, <laughs> <laughs> I need a good chat on. Yeah. So then get in there. They took a class where the guy was like a distiller or whatever. Their problem, they t- they were telling me that. So they were looking at starting a distillery. The problem is they want to do whiskey, and you have to leave it in the barrels for like five years. And so you have all your money tied up in these barrels for five years. And so the, it's a it's kind of a cash flow issue unless you can like front you a big chunk. Yeah, float it for five or six yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. They w- actually, what's what's interesting is if you can you can buy already distilled liquor and and put it in your own barrels and and private label for like your startup yeah um huh and so then then you can cut down that time frame significantly but uh you know when people start they obviously want to start with their their own product right. a lot of times she was explaining so, yeah. yeah she was explaining to me that a lot of people will do vodka off the start so that you can have something that you can turn quickly to kind of keep you afloat until your whiskey starts coming out yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we I could do a whole podcast on on whiskey and and liquor because it's it's amazing. We did uh we were on a trip this summer in Scotland and we toured a a dis- big distillery in um not the Highlands, but I'm drawing a blank right now, but north of Edinburgh, we toured a distillery where many distilleries are and got a really in-depth it was a, a over 2-hour tour with uh their head of production. And so he gave us Tons of insight. I, I hadn't, I'd known a little bit about the process, but there, there are many things that he mentioned, especially in terms of the price for older spirits, because you kind of just assume like it, it's a little higher quality, you know, maybe it's a little marketing, but it's, it's really because they're losing that much product to evaporation year after year that they have that much less product. And so they have to mark it up no so kidding. much more. Yeah. Wait, so you, it loses to evaporation? Oh yeah, when you're walking through the big storehouses, I think they call it the the vapor of angels. You can you can s- just smell it, and it's like seeping into you as you're walking through these huge storehouses with thousands of barrels of whiskey. It's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. My dad tells a story where he t- he took his students to the, this whiskey distillery or whatever. And uh, so, like, he's over there smelling it. And then all of a sudden, he's like, man, I'm, like, feeling lightheaded. And then he asked the guy, he's like, yeah, when people, if you smell it, you can get start to get drunk off smelling it or at least uh, intoxicate off smelling it. And he said the people that showed up to the factory for the, like, the started working there, the first week or two, they would just, like, they would have to go home early because they, like, they'd be <laughs> drunk. And so they'd have to get, like, <laughs> acclimated to having alcohol in the air. Interesting. Another interesting thing about the uh, the aging process is that it, the small, smaller the barrel, the faster it ages. So like in a big 55 or 63 gallon barrel, you know, it may take six or 10 years to put off a good product. But if they actually put those products in, you know, a gallon or 10 gallon barrels, mm-hmm. they add, they age, um, you know, a percentage based on the size differential and the actual amount of it's the percentage of whiskey that's touching the raw barrel okay. edge that is actually huh. how quickly it ages. Yeah. Hey, check out this. I just sent you a link on Skype. Can you check that? Uh, it's called the Scratch and Sniff Wine Book. Hmm. Have you seen this before? They also have a whiskey one. I don't think I have. So this guy was on Tim Ferriss talking about, uh, I think he was, he was talking about both wine, or, wine and whiskey, but uh, talking about the different 
smells or the different categories you should think about when you're like he was he was talking about whiskey the different things you should think about when you're uh tasting whiskey but i'm i'm interested to check out this book and see what it's see what it's about i have a terrible sense of smell so i don't know how well it'll work but it's called the scratch and sniff wine expert richard betts I saw it. that. That does sound really interesting. Yeah, that'll be tough for you to uh, develop your palate with uh, with a lacking sense of smell. But I think one thing that is actually super nerdy and super helpful is there's they're called tasting wheels, and so they have them for wine, they have them for coffee, they have them for whiskey, um, and they're just surrounded by descriptions. So you know, if if a wine is more tannic or leather flavor or chocolate or many things in my life would roll her eyes because it sounds so pretentious to be discussing. Um, that there's these big wheels that have, you know, hundreds of different flavors. And the reason why it's valuable is because you may be tasting those things, but until you think of those words and create your own concept of what that flavor or smell right. would be like, it, it's impossible for you to actually describe those to people. So it's, it's kind of this combination of, learning what these flavors are but also learning how to communicate what flavors you're actually tasting yeah huh so i i I used to bust it out in coffee shops uh looking at my flavor wheel to decide you know all the different flavors i was getting out of my cup yeah yeah interesting all right so i have a see i have one last point so i want to go back to or move forward to a four-hour chef so i think The how learn anything fast in the first twenty hours—that's a good starter. I think it that kind of teaches you how to get moving and how to kind of motivate yourself or remove remove barriers or kind of uh, get to almost the eighty percent level. And then Four Hour Chef kind of talks about kind of getting to the next level, almost to the ninety percent level. And uh, his two principles are overcome failure points. So he said a lot of times there's too many ingredients or too many tools; it's too complicated. And then margin of safety. So margin of safety is how badly can you mangle it and it still be good. <laughs> so like he's so uh, the principles of the book. So first of all, he said, okay, it's a four hour chef. He, it's kind of his thing as a four hour whatever. And so the first thing was that he's only going to have, I think maybe four to six ingredients. So you don't have to have an entire spice rack to do the, these recipes. And then he was talking about, okay, the three main ways of, of cooking are uh, probably in order of popularity, grilling, sautéing, and braising. But in order of how challenging it is, braising is the easiest, and then sautéing, and then grilling. So while most people want to start off grilling, he said, "Hey, look, you can if you you braise a a lamb shank. And first of all, most people don't even know what a lamb or have haven't seen a lamb shank or per, probably have never purchased one. But he said, so that's kind of cool that you're doing this. What most people would consider to be a thirty or forty dollar uh, meal and it's imp- it's almost impossible to mess up. So you're supposed to put it in there for three hours, but if you put it in there for four hours, no big deal. If you kind of put it in there for two and a half, it's no big deal. There's few ingredients, so it kind of gives you some momentum because you know you're not going to just completely mess it up. Yeah, setting yourself <laughs> up for success yeah. for sure. So that's kind of how he structured the recipes from one to fifteen, continually getting a little more challenging, but building on the previous one, and so. You kind of were able to keep the momentum and uh, and keep it going. For sure. So the thing I wanted to shift to is, you know, from beginning acquisition of a skill, 
you know, you're picking up the basics. Like you said, you're trying to get some level of mastery of the very basic skills. One important thing, in my opinion, is always setting goals. Um, I think the bigger the goal, the better. Um, I know some people have difficulty with, with failure. Um, so I think it depends a little bit person to person, but you need some sort of goal that you're shooting for. Um, but so when you're shooting for those goals, this where I don't want to really get into goal setting because there's, there's so much we could talk about there, but I, I want to talk about when you have a goal that's set, how do you start working towards that? And so, you know, for me, one of the things that I've discovered is if you're trying to learn something, if there's a way to do it professionally, that's how you're going to learn the fastest. So, um, in the air force, I was, um, a fitness, like a, what are, what are they called? I can't even remember now. Uh, oh, fitness monitor or PFT. Yeah, or, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I was in charge yeah. of fitness for, for our squadron. So I would lead, lead workouts, make sure if people were overweight or not passing their tests that they worked out with me afterwards. Uh, and so that kind of led to the discovery that, I was passionate about fitness and I really enjoyed instructing people. And then as I was looking to become a personal trainer, I realized, oh, you're actually not very good at instructing people. You're really good at constructing workouts and telling people what the workout we're going to do. Yeah. But you're an incredibly poor instructor. How so, did you self-assess that? Um, it was, it was actually the first class that I led. <laughs> so, so I led a, a bigger boot camp class in Boston, a big outdoor boot camp class of, I think the first one I taught was like 35 people. And it was a, not a disaster, but it was very disorganized. And if you had pulled the people what they thought, they would say, this guy is not a good instructor. Like I just wasn't loud enough, clear enough. I was so used to doing all the exercises with people that that made me not a great instructor because I was like, okay, we're doing 20 burpees. I'll do 20 burpees with you instead of walking around and, and talking to people okay. and encouraging them and, and making transitions much more smoothly. So well, hold on, I have a question. So for instructing is do you, what percentage is motivation and what percentage is like getting them to have the proper form? So it's a balancing act because especially in an outdoor boot camp setting, you have so many different skill levels and and this was like a more um not necessarily extreme but they really wanted to push people and it wasn't it wasn't super friendly in terms of oh you can do it it was like you need to get your butt down and do a real push up so i mean like there there was never any like you need to be really nice to our clients it was okay. just like you need to be a really good instructor and so you know, that, like I said, that was one of the hardest things for me to not do all the exercises along and to really get up and around and, and talk to people and make corrections and, uh, make sure that people were doing things as not, not necessarily safely, but you know, form is so important, uh, no matter what exercise you're doing, but especially when you're doing a lot of reps and pretty high intensity. But yeah, I mean, for me, that was like the fastest way to learn because there was such a strong negative stimuli for when I did a did poorly in a class. You know, like <laughs> right. I would feel it. Like people would be dragging. the The hour would just go on forever, and so that's really my biggest motivator personally. I I don't really even enjoy positive stimuli anymore. That sounds like a humble brag, <laughs> but but like it's really just not not of interest. Like 
I want actual feedback. I want people to say, here's what you are poor at. Like it's for somebody to say, oh, that was such an interesting podcast. Like that was really fun to listen to. I'm just like, why, why, why? Like, tell me what was terrible. Like, tell me, tell me what you found to be not interesting so that I can be more interesting next time. So it was the greatest setup for me. It was, it was so much fun to teach large groups of people and a new class every six weeks to challenge me to be a better instructor. And, and I did that. I only did it for nine months. And then uh, when I was in Minnesota, I trained at a much smaller and I did one-on-one training, which was fun too, but totally different. But that outside, you know, those groups of 30 to 40 people, like you got to be ready to go and you got to be ready to be loud and motivational. And I, I was just really surprised a how hard it was B, how much I sucked at it and see how much, how much and how quickly I could learn. Yeah. So my two questions are number one, how, so once you realized that you were very good, what did you do? Like, what were the steps you, you, what steps did you take to improve? And then the second thing is, had you already signed up for the whole class or did like, did you have the option to, to quit or were, were you already locked in for the six week class or whatever? I mean, it was, it was either me doing the six week class or me getting fired. Like that was probably a more likely, likely thing to happen. I think I did, um, I did one demo where the owner was there and he, he was awesome. I mean, he is a really, really great guy and he could see like I was really passionate, but I just needed to, to learn how to teach. So he, he did give me a lot of, a lot of leeway and he gave me tons of feedback. So I think number one, that was what was helpful. And he was, he was saying like, you you don't need to do as much actual exercise. Like you need to be um, a little bit more involved in terms of seeing more people, meeting more people. So he was there for your first class and then he gave you feedback afterwards. Yeah. And then that, that company was really good about, um, they had good online feedback structure where it wasn't that they required people to leave feedback, but it was really ingrained in the culture that trainers wanted feedback and wanted to be better for the next session. So at the end of every session, you got this printout of what everyone thought of your class. And so if you had 40 people, you may have gotten 22 or 25 actual assessments. And they were, I mean, like it was kind of an outlier in terms of getting really good feedback and, and being able to learn quickly. Like I said, what did I do differently? I think that's a great question. I think I think some of it is organic, like feeling feeling those changes. Some of it was from the owner, Peter. Um, I think what I learned most was structuring workouts in a way that gave me that space. You know, like if you have really tight workouts, tight circuits where you're transitioning quickly, like that doesn't give you a lot of time to do things. But if you have bigger circuits, uh, longer sets, higher intensity, you know, you can really walk around and see people and make corrections and see how people are doing. And so, I mean, I just learned, learned more about how to structure those workouts and what worked. And then the other thing was I didn't realize how much energy and, and positivity, I guess you'd say you needed to bring for that larger group. Okay. It's just debt. Like if you're like, Hey, welcome, let's get started. It's time to, it's time to kick your own ass. Like that, that's not going to, that's not going to work at five 30 in the morning. Right. You know, like people aren't going to respond to that. I, yeah, I think there probably can't. I wonder if, do you think there could be too much enthusiasm? Maybe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I, I told them, you know, I said, I'm not always going to be positive. I said, I find negative stimuli to be a very powerful tool and I'm happy to use it during our classes. 
And it wasn't that I ever belittled people. Like if they were trying really hard, obviously I was encouraging, but like you need to correct people on their form. You need to, if somebody's dragging, you need to say, pick it up. And so those things are so much more valuable because everybody hates being the worst. Everyone hates being the slowest. And so like to give them that little motivation or that little pinch of negative stimuli like that, that's really what the value of the personal trainer is to just keep pushing people forward. Yeah. So talking about getting towards goals, um, and actually negative reinforcement. Um, I think the people that were in that class, you know, they probably had their own personal goals and I would talk to them about what their personal goals were, but you know, the negative reinforcement for them was that they had paid for this class. They paid for the whole six weeks and they needed, they felt like they wanted to get their money's worth. Now, some people would, would just not show up, but I think the reason why they might not have shown up because if they just had a absurd amount of money and were happy to just blow that, that was fine. But the people who felt like they had made a significant financial investment were there all the time, yeah. were there early, stretched out and ready to go because that that is a level of stimuli that you need to reach. Like going back to that stress level, like you need to figure out if you're going to invest in something financially, something like working out or language skills or really any sort of acquisition, you know, what is that level where you're going to be like, oh my God, if I miss this, I'm going to feel horrible and I need to make this a priority as opposed to anything else in my life. I think there's a principle where both as an instructor and as someone that's learning, you don't want to give it away for free or you don't want to sign up for something that's free because then it's like, uh, you don't have the like you just talked about you don't have the commitment yep for sure free is the worst think about how crappy a free food you would eat that's that's my (laughs) that's like my thing like i will accept any free food um but like if you were like okay pay two dollars for this cracker i'd be like no that's a saltine cracker of course i'm not gonna pay two dollars for it so I i think there's like you said there's this level of of stress but there's also you know that um, quality pricing element to it. Too. Yeah. So before we talked before the show, we were talking about kind of how how to motivate yourself to do that. And that first of all, people hate the feeling of loss more than they get enjoyment out of the like gaining something. So uh, when you set up motivation or tools to motivate yourself to say, oh, at the end of this, I'm going to get ten dollars. That's not as effective as saying at the end of this, I'm going to lose ten dollars or I'm going to so people have taken advantage of that and there's different programs and websites out there to help you do things like that. Like if you set a goal and you don't reach it, that they, you have to pay a certain amount. Right. Or, yeah. or they'll, they'll donate your, like I've, I can't remember who it was, but someone was explaining that they, like it was a weight loss thing and they said, okay, you're, they gave their might like the, the money to the friend said, Hey, if I don't follow through on this, I want you to donate this to a charity that I absolutely despise. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. I think for me, that's very effective in terms of motivation. Like that's, that's the way that I get, get excited. And luckily sometimes it's, it's internal to say, here's my goal. If I don't get that, I'm going to feel terrible. But yeah, I think I think getting a little bit more of that outside push accountability is, is really important though. So those were the the first two types of accountability is that that professional 
what I was talking about of, of really pushing that, that skill out and, and having to demonstrate your mastery in front of people. I think, I think that's really the value of that in terms of you can't hide behind, um, what you know, like you really need to prove it. Um, I think purchasing accountability is really effective, like paying for personal training, paying for yoga, paying for language instruction. Like that's really valuable. And then I, the third on, one, so I'm gonna cut, I think also not just for accountability. I think pe- people always ask me, Hey, can I just go out and ski? And I'll just like, I'll just try it for the morning. And I tell them, Hey, look, you just take one class because just understand the, the basics that will set, will put you forward weeks or days forward ahead. And so I think people want to learn it on their own, but there's most of the time, if you can just pay someone or find some way to get actual instruction from someone, that's going to set you forward significantly. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. And then the third one is, is relational accountability. So <clears throat> that's more like if you had a goal to run a 5k or a 10k or a marathon and you had a, a buddy to do it with. Um, I think that is only really effective if the other person is committed and has similar level of motivation as you. Um, I've seen both failures and a lot of success on that, but again, you both have to have that that equal buy-in and pretty similar personalities where, or at least an understanding of your personalities and what motivates each other. And probably you can enhance it by putting a bet between each other or some sort of thing to help motivate each other or i think maybe if someone's already made it a habit and the other person is is coming along with them that may help although at some point the person that's doing it as a habit is not struggling and so sometimes that's hard on the other person to continue and they're like fine this guy's it's easy for them so i'm done yeah that is a good point because if one fails you probably are both going to fail um so there's definitely a risk involved with that for sure and like I said, I think that's important to, to know who you're dealing with and, and know how committed they are. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to point out accountability-wise um, for this podcast, um, I feel like one of the things we, we talked about at the uh, episode zero was trying to bring in both, both viewpoints. So I think our, a challenge for next week, I want to take on some topic and we can almost do it like, a, like an old school old school argument where you mm-hmm. take the pro, I take the con at some point and, and we really hash it out. So let's do some thinking on that. Okay. That was just a, a side note. Hey, I have one more. Um, so I have one more comment on the, kind of what we're talking sure. about in terms of um, motivating yourself to do things or I'm reading this book called nudge. And so uh, the, it's called improving decisions about health, wealth, and happiness, but it talks about just things in your environment that kind of push you to do certain things. And they're talking about self-control and, uh, the first thing they mentioned was uh, kind of what we already talked about where the person needed to complete their thesis, but really they could kind of put it off if they wanted to. So the guy sent a check. So he had 10 weeks to complete the thesis. And so he said, if you don't complete it, he sent the checks to this dude. He said, hey, you can cash this check if I don't give you a, like the next chapter in my thesis by the end of the week. And so sure enough, man, he said most of the time it was by minutes. But every week he got in there as a hundred dollars. Every week he got in there and he was submitting the chapters of his thesis. And then the other thing, which I hadn't actually heard of, but it's just fascinating to me. Apparently, and they're talking about different ways of self-control. Apparently, you can self-ban yourself from casinos. So, like, there's this. Really? Yeah, so, if you're like a heavy gambler, 
you can submit yourself to a list to where like they won't let you gamble in their casino they won't let you pull out chips that's a that's a good public service announcement <laughs> so if, if anyone listening has a gambling problem please do that please uh submit your name and your photo to uh, all casinos near your, in your general vicinity because that's, that's a fantastic idea Maybe we should all just do that. Let's just let's just all do that. I think <laughs> just submit all of our names and keep keep from going to casinos. I, yeah. Oh, I don't know. God, casinos. Do you gamble? I gamble occasionally. I did have so there was. <laughs> I usually I don't gamble that often, but I do. So I've been to Vegas a few times. There there was one time where I called up USA and I had some. There was some other issue I was talking about them, <laughs> and I tried to lower my my cash amount. <laughs> <laughs> so I lowered it, and then sure enough, man, by the end of the night, I called it right back up and raised it. <laughs> I, oh, I even admitted to him, I said, hey, man, I'm just trying to save myself from my future self, so can you lower this thing down to like four, 300 or 400? <laughs> I don't know if it's the same guy, but oh, man. called it right back up. Hey, man, bump this up 100 bucks. I <laughs> Oh, what were you playing? <clears throat> blackjack? Probably, um, bl- um, probably blackjack. Yeah, I'm not a gambler. Other than I do very much enjoy playing Texas Hold'em, mm. but I I don't really consider that that gambling. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that like in a cocky <laughs> way, like because I always win money. But it's because like the the only thing I'll ever play for is five or ten bucks, oh, and that's it. not. That's not really gambling when you're playing for like 10 hours at a time. Yeah. So in college one time, I don't think I've played blackjack since. So I, I, I took like, I, well, I probably was done with my, my finals early. So I didn't have anything to do. So I took the rest of the week and just learned all the different combinations in blackjack. So I learned how you're supposed to play. But then it became just a complete exercise. And I was just it, like, it wasn't fun anymore. So I, and I haven't played since, really. Did you win? No. Were you winning? No, you still lose. <laughs> you just lose less. <laughs> the way you said it was like it was it was so boring. I was just winning no, all this I was money. Just, I was still losing, but I was losing less. And then there was no time where I was like, "Hey, man, I'm going to make this dairy play." I was like, "Yeah, I know exactly what I'm supposed to play here." And I wasn't counting well, cards. Sell my Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's hilarious. Um, so I wanted to pivot. You actually coined this phrase in the last podcast, perusing the news. Um, and so I wanted to, to kick off with your note-taking extravaganza, 140 characters at a time. I'm, I'm curious to know everything that you learned and, and, and took in from the uh, the beautiful ether that is Twitter. Okay, so first of all, I would consider it a complete failure. The only thing, what I learned about Twitter is that I use it as entertainment. And I don't... It's too hard to find substantive like articles on Twitter. It's all especially the comments the comment section just staring there at you in the face and you never learn anything interesting in the comment section. It's always back and forth. And then someone will have a comment and you'll just you're down this rabbit hole chasing comments, seeing who's gonna come out on top on these arguments. So I I don't I think it was overall a failure. I, so I took notes for maybe an hour. I have in my notes I made a note about the Sam Harris Salon interview where they interviewed him. He made some disparaging comments about Salon and then they they didn't put it in the interview, which, okay. <laughs> I don't know. That's hilarious. And then 
Cher had some crazy tweet, but I don't even know what it was. Oh, okay. So one thing that was cool was the Kobe shot chart. Have you seen that? No, I bet it's amazing. It's old though. Kobe versus young Kobe, and it's in those like his name's Kurt Goldsberry. I think he does like the shot chart. And when oh, when sure. he's young, it's all orange, and he's better than average. And then now it's just completely blue and just devastating. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, t- I heard some stat on the Lakers this year and how bad they are and how poor their shot their shot selection is historically bad by a significant margin, like forty percent worse than any team ever i forget it was like a very high percentage of their shots are poor closely guarded three-point shots <laughs> that they've basically run no i wonder how just everyone's just following kobe's lead but yeah all right so i have Great that leader. and then i had one more kind of well i don't know if it's interesting but so ramit set seti he uh he actually has some interesting articles but he he posted this news article about this baboon battle that happened in the toronto zoo so apparently it's a matriarchal uh hierarchy and with baboons and the like they're and they were describing it the oldest that's my side the the, uh the oldest baboon female died and so then there was an older one that kind of took over, but she was kind of on her last legs. And so then it became this all-out brawl where people... And they were talking about the, their names. And it was almost like Game of Thrones, how the different people were kind of teaming up and, and fighting. And like people would be sleeping and waking up with bruises and cuts and everything. Like I said, like, it was kind of interesting to read. But was that like that's that's all it was. That, that That's all I have. That was my Twitter. Like That's what I read on Twitter. I... I I think I'm shut. I'm I'm done with Twitter. <laughs> I'm at least deleting it off my cell phone. Yeah, and I've also I, I don't know. And I I've it's only for entertainment. So yeah, I can. It's I can the equivalent of watching that. TV for me. So if I if I'm cool with just like lounging around mindlessly, thumbing through Twitter, then that's fine. But I I I I can't try to claim that it's some sort of a great spot to find news. For sure. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty valid. Um, one question I had, and this is more like a getting to know you question. What is the nerdiest thing you did as a kid, and how have you gotten nerdier? Oh. Because <clears throat> I, I was, I was going to say, or less nerdy, but I'm almost positive that both of us have gotten significantly nerdier. So I, I, was a, I used to read all the time as a kid. I, in fact, I'm the only... I had to get glasses, and all my siblings, I have three brothers and sisters, they all made fun of me about I read too much, and I ruined my eyes, and they were just poking fun at me about my crappy eyes and that they had That's great so eyes. Mean. That's so mean. <laughs> but I, I, I had this favorite book called It Pays to Have No Power, and so it was either one or two page little uh, like mini articles on different different things in history or different inventions and so i read through that book probably like four times and then when i was in fifth or sixth grade we there's like this big stack of maybe 200 biographies it was these biographies of famous people when they were kids and i had to get a an exception i think you're only allowed to check out two books and i had to get a life of the librarian exception to check out five because i was going through five a week that's incredible. I, I did not know that about and it, you. That's... And it ruined my eyes. <laughs> I'm so jealous. All I was reading was Choose Your Own Adventure at that stage. 
<laughs> just just burning through the choose your own adventures. I was not a big reader at all. So, um, oh, you're at, so the oh, second no, part, you asked me how I'm nerdier now. I don't think I, I don't know that I'm nerdier, but I'm definitely more of a hippie. At least from, yeah. if I look, if I saw myself back when I was a kid and I could look forward to it, I would say, this guy is a hippie because I'm meditating, I'm journaling, I'm doing yeah. all these, I'm eating, uh, community share agriculture. Like, I'm doing all these things that, are definitely more on the hippie side compared to what I would have expected growing up. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how that stuff is almost mainstream. Not not that everyone does it, but the, that it's it's super it's very acceptable to to I'm going to put it's... air quotes living your lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what the nerdiest thing that that I did. I asked the question. I didn't even think about it. Um, I was kind of I was a nerd though for sure. I. I would say like career planning was by far the the nerdiest level that I got as a kid. My mom um, worked in kind of a career planning section at a community college. Like she she led a program. And so I had all this access that like little kids generally don't have access to. Like I would go job shadow people at advertising firms when I was in like sixth grade. And like if there was any job that interested me, I would I would go and, and tour that company and like follow somebody around and ask them all these questions about their job and if they like their job. And I would do really in-depth research into the industry and how much it was growing oh, and, wow. and what the job outlook was. Yeah. And this was like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth through, I guess now I still do it. <laughs> so, so I haven't gotten nerdier or less nerdier in that extreme. But yeah, it was from a really early age I started thinking about my career very seriously yeah i think that's one area where i'm weak because both both my parents were teachers and like i would not say there's a huge there's huge industry in union there's not really and so i wasn't really around business growing up i i tried to a little bit like i took some a business class like the one business class in our high school but i don't think i was around real business and then in co- I mean, in college, some, but then now I'm in the Air Force, and so I think that's that's one area I'm missing. I did spend a year at at Intel, but even then, it's kind of a big bureaucracy. I'd like to be around. I'd like to see how business works from a small business perspective, and see how it is when you're managing all the different elements of it. Yeah, get yourself into a startup. That's what you got to do. <laughs> Just keep your eyes open yeah. for it. I'm sure it'll happen. Um, one thing that I wanted to follow up on you. You surprised me with the question on um, what I wanted my son Ivan to experience. And my answer, looking back, my answer was very poor. So I, I, I thought about it a lot. Um, and I think some of the things that I want for Ivan are, are more sensory things. Like I want him to be able to explore his emotions much more than I was. Because I think the generations before us, like discussions on emotions didn't take place. And so, at least in in my family, like, we would talk about behavior for sure, but there wasn't a lot of discussion of, like, what are you feeling? Describe what you're feeling. Like, why why do you feel upset in this situation or or whatnot? So, I I feel like, me personally, I can read people very well, but in terms of my own internal emotional intelligence, it's it's pretty low. So, I I think... um, I think that's one thing I want Ivan to be able to do is just just really understand himself on an, on a much deeper level, um, and then I think I want a similar experience in what I was just describing on how nerdy I was in career career planning because I think that's that's really important and something that not that many people get. Um, 
and I feel very lucky that I, that I did get that I experience. Think just, and then finally, well, I, will think oh, so. I think, okay, so two things. I think in terms of being, uh, being able to express your emotions, I think that having a vocabulary to, to describe different, different aspects of your emotions is important. And that's probably one area that I'm weak that I could improve on. Uh, is just having a vocabulary to explain your different emotional states. Yeah, for sure. And for me, it's, I, I think I, I have the vocabulary to a certain degree, but it takes me so long to process and to, to place that vocabulary on what I'm feeling uh, is really the thing. Like it takes a significant amount of time when I'm sitting down and like thinking about yeah, what I'm feeling. I, I'm in the same boat. I'll just be sitting there and the, then the person's like, well, what are you thinking? And I'm like, well, <laughs> hey, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get there, but I just don't know how to describe it at the, at the moment. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm glad somebody else feels like The that. other thing that you're talking about, just give, I think just exposing him to different opportunities just kind of opens people's uh, mind to the different possibilities that are out there. I think that's really yeah, and important. I think, and I think going back to the taking yourself seriously, but being okay with failure applies so much to being a kid because I, I know there, there are things that I probably would have tried as a kid if I hadn't been afraid to fail. Yeah, you know, and and like if if somebody had been like, you know, it's okay to be terrible at something like that's that's fine. Like you you can work to improve it, but you know it it doesn't really matter if you're bad at it to begin with, or if you're bad at it in the middle, or if you're bad at it at the end. Like what matters is that you have a passion for it and that you <laughs> are working and it's fun to work on. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that, and then yoga is the final thing. Like I want I want dude to be super flexible and super strong yoga wise. Cause I think, um, being a, a tall person <laughs> and I'm, I'm guessing my son will be pretty tall. Um, I think that's really important in terms of just your physical well being and something I, I wish I had, had had the, uh, the idea and concept and focus on as a younger kid. How would you compare? So yoga versus gymnastics versus martial arts. Do you think one is better than the other or of those three? Um, I think personally yoga is the best. Um, but I think it depends on, on the child. I think for some children who are really shy and, and introverted martial arts is probably the best. Um, I think kids who are, um, like crazy ADD or crazy energy level gymnastics are the best. And then I think yoga is pretty much good for everybody. Like it's really good if you are ADD because it forces you to focus and it forces you to be connected with what you're doing and slowing down. Um, but again, if you have a crazy kid who needs to burn <clears throat> off energy, yoga is probably not the best place to go. Yeah. So a story on myself on this. So when I was, how old was I? I don't know. This is probably like five years ago. I decided I wanted, I wanted to do a backflip. Actually, I've been wanting to do a backflip since I got out of college. And so at first you, you did it right no no the, the, so you still have it no so the first <laughs> the first time i tried i do this girl that did, was a gymnast and so we went into the gym and she's like it's not that hard we'll just pile you up and you'll jump off these pads and then i'll just kind of be here to spot you so <laughs> i tried it and i just pile drive my neck right into the ground and i bit my tongue <laughs> yeah. and i was seeing the stars so that was my first attempt at the backflip doing gymnastics and then it was then I went all through Turkey was unsuccessful, and then when I went to Portland, I said, "Hey, I'm going to get serious about this. I'm going to take a gymnastics class." 
So I took this adult gymnastics class and so when I showed up, they're like, well, what do you want to do? What are you here for? And I said, well, I really just want to do a backflip. And then they kind of looked at me and laughed. And ultimately, I probably was never close, but I did learn how to do a cartwheel. Once you, there's got to be some DC parkours, aren't there? I don't know. There's got to be. You should look up. You think I should I go back like this, after it? I feel like this is my job right now to to be your relational accountability <laughs> and to, to to make sure that you you find a good parkour gym or studio and you said, the only thing I want to learn is a backflip. Parkour is a great exercise routine too. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll see. I don't know. I have to think about this. <laughs> I'm I'm probably going to end up doing a deep dive and sending you some links. Don't <laughs> all worry. All right, all right. <laughs> so one, one quote that stood out to me this week, and this is kind of what I would like to close on. I was listening to Joe Rogan Experience. Um, had a really great podcast last week just talking about political correctness and, you know, the overall discourse um, in the world right now. Um, but there was a quote that said, um, we have a willingness to extend political freedom to those that we like, and we have a we have a lack of will, willingness to extend political freedom to those that we don't. Um, that's not a direct quote, but that's that's paraphrasing what they were discussing. But I, I found that to be pretty profound um, and very much applicable to what what we talked about in the in the previous episodes in terms of you know don't just insulate yourself to your own opinion or to those people that you you relate to the most really try to seek out seek out others and seek understanding about you know why they have that opinion because a lot of times those opinions come from a real place you know it's not just that it's not like a media invention where this this idea has been incepted upon them like they they've had thought and they've experienced things and so you know you you kind of have to come to some level of respect, even if you don't necessarily respect the opinion itself, like just respecting the person. So that's, that's my final closing thought. Any, any final closing thoughts for this weekend uh, or this week? <laughs> my, well, okay. So for, first of all, uh, I just read this thing from uh, Ryan holiday. So he, he sends out a list of all the books that he's read. They just a, a short thing about each one of them that he learned and just related to what you talked about. Uh, he reread, Fahrenheit, what is it? Nine. What's the book? Hold on, look it up. Give me one second. Uh, Fahrenheit four five one. So that's the book of I, I don't know if you read it, but where at the beginning, like the firemen are coming in and the houses are fireproof and they're just burning all the books. And he he said he remembers as a child that the moral of the story was don't burn books that the, the books are good. But he said when he reread it, um, he said that it's let's see, it's not about government censorship. It's about what happens when people get together and try to eliminate anything offensive or provocative from their culture. In other words, I learned the real reason that the real reason we need to stop protecting people's feelings. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's a great quote. That's a great point. So to close, we have a book club book. It's called triumphs of experience. It's available on Amazon. It's a really great read. It's pretty in depth, but what's it's, our it's time nice frame? You can, um let's shoot for episode five maybe okay all right yeah and i mean it'll probably just be the second half of five unless you you really love it and and want to do an entire episode which which i'm fine with it's one of my one of my all-time favorite books because it's so it's so formative i don't want to i don't want to steal 
the thunder from that episode, but yeah, it's, it's very formative to, to read about how people can actually change who they are. Um, and inspires, inspires me daily to try to be a better person and not to be that, that guy that the teacher doesn't like in high school. <laughs> so, All right. so I'm ending on such an aspirational <laughs> note. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's episode two. Um, I'm Frank Boyce. And I'm Axel Clark. Choose a lovable project and go try something new. <laughs>